Welcome to the Cashflow Guys Podcast. Join Tyler and his team as they unlock the secrets to achieving financial independence through wealth building strategies inspired by Robert Kiyosaki and other thought provoking leaders. Learn to build leveraged streams of cash flow that land in your pocket and improve your quality of life. Gain access to cutting-edge ideas that will increase your productivity and streamline your success. Find out how to supercharge your retirement plan so you won't have to retire with a pay cut. You can escape the rat race. Are you ready? It's time to Learn to Earn with Tyler Chef. Welcome to the Cashflow Guys podcast. It's that time again. It is Friday morning. We are here for another episode. You know, folks, I have been looking at, you know, how I get my shiny objects sometimes, but I got something here that's really not so shiny. They're usually kind of dull. The doors are painted the same colors. There's lots of them. And no, they're not apartment buildings. I'm talking about self-storage. And I was talking to our guest here before we hit record, and I was telling him that I've been looking for someone that I, that could come on the show to talk about self-storage. And by looking means that I wasn't actually calling down the yellow pages, trying to find somebody. I knew that I, to myself, I thought to myself, I had to get somebody in here to talk about self-storage, somebody that's actually doing it. I don't want some guy that's thinks he knows something or he's read a couple books or he's read a bigger pockets blog. And now suddenly he's an expert. I wanted a player that's actually in the field, doing the work, rolling up the sleeves, figuring it out. Let me introduce to you today. I've got Hunter Thompson and he is with Cashflow Connections. Hunter, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. It's an honor. Now you are, let's see, you're a real estate consulting firm. You're based out of LA um, and you guys focus exclusively from what I can tell on the little tiny boxes that we love to call self-storage. Yeah, we do a little bit of we do a little bit of everything, but the I'd say 50% of our business is tied up in self-storage or mobile home parks. And we can talk into the, about the details of either of those, but yeah, I mean, we're seeing a lot of opportunities in those recession resistant assets and we try to be as diversified as possible, but there's just those deals are coming out on a consistent basis and and we want to take advantage of that. Well, I'm going to start right there cuz I think you just got to my first question is recession-proof assets. When I hear that, the first thing I think about my audience appreciates my honesty. I know you will too. I think BS, nothing is recession-proof. But doing a little research for this show because I am an idiot when it comes to this multifamily or multi or storage units, I get multifamily storage units, haven't done one yet. So show me, tell me where the recession-proof is. Yeah, sure. And, you know, not to be a stickler, but I, I like to use the terminology recession resistant because I think to your point, nothing is recession proof, right? Especially because a lot of these assets are going to be using leverage and the capital markets are subject to changes, right? And, and that's not something we can really control. Right. However, the, the big picture thesis with self storage is that the demand is, is relatively inelastic. Now, before we jump into that, it's important to look at where we are in, in terms of market cycles. You know, we're in our 99th month 
as of now in terms of the expansion since the June of 2009 expansion, the trough. Right. Um, that's, that's really significant. There's only been two cycles since 1857 that have lasted longer than 99 months out of 33 cycles in that entire period. And that's just how long the data goes back. So we really want to focus on these type of assets because of that data point alone, as well as many others. But with cell storage in particular, I'd say that from a big picture perspective, the demand for the product is inelastic because you use the product when you're going through some kind of change. And those changes are very common during recessions. So you think about things like job changes, foreclosures, layoffs, downsizing, kids moving home from college unexpectedly, things like that. All of those are more common during recessions and all of them increase the likelihood that someone's going to be a tenant of the product. So that's kind of the big picture thesis, but we have a lot of data that backs that up. You know, we've got a few decades of not only rental increases taking place during the 2001, 2008 recessions, but also occupancy remaining high. Right. And the, the self storage asset class was relatively in its infancy during the, you know, mid eighties, mid nineties. So it basically doubled in size during the, from the mid nineties to about 2012 or so. And during that time, still occupancies relatively high, vacancies relatively low, prices increasing. So the data backs up that, that thesis quite well. It's amazing to me. And, and you're right. My knee jerk reaction was BS. And then as I dug a little deeper and I, and I was on your website, which by the way, kudos, well done on the website, ladies and gentlemen, you need to go over his website. I'll put the link. Wow. Appreciate that. Thank you. Love it. It's clean. It's laid out. Well, you didn't take me off into some shiny never, never land. You didn't try to sell me a course in the process. It was amazing. I love it. You can opt in. <laughs> it's, it's real simple. So uh, cashflowconnectionsguys.com. I'll put that in the show notes. So I wanted to get that out, but I thought about it. I'm like, how many times in my life, especially when I was younger, did I have a storage room? And I'd pretty much tell you most of it, except for the last probably eight years. And the reason in the last eight years is I finally started to pull my head out of my, you know what, as become financially intelligent, realize that I'm just throwing money away. I'm, I'm paying to store stuff that's really junk. It's like, you know, it's, it's garbage, but yet it's a phenomenon. It's like a gym membership. People can't stop doing it. So if you're thinking about something to invest in, well, you know, the fidget spinner people will get tired of, but the, the storage unit, people are <laughs> always going to overconsume. They're always going to overbuy. They're going to have too much furniture. Businesses are going to have too much inventory. People hoard. I mean, that we're Americans. We hoard everything. We're, 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 it's ridiculous. So it's a beautiful business concept. I got to say. Yeah, I mean, you we brought up a good point. I mean, part of the reason that people are don't really consider it a high priority to stop their self storage is number one, they obviously want their product. The United States in particular is a consumer based economy, but also the gross dollars are relatively insignificant. So you're talking about maybe a hundred or $120 a month. Not that that's insignificant in terms of your, your monthly income or whatever, but in terms of you have some kind of attachment to that product and it doesn't make you get out of bed and, and make that choice. But that actually plays into another piece of the, the business, which is that rental increases can be very effectively implemented because of the fact that the gross dollars is relatively insignificant to the tenant base. So with typical real estate assets, three to 4% rental increases, those are favorable rental increases in something like multifamily, especially if you continue that over the long term. Right. But if you're looking at self-storage, you can see 6% rental increases that are only going to increase the rent by six or maybe $9 a month. 
compared to, let's say the average two bedroom apartment, $1,200 a month, 60% would be about $72 a month. That's, that's really significant. So you've got this situation where the question becomes, are these tenants going to take the day off work, hire a rental truck, move all their stuff down the street where they're probably doing the same thing just for six or $9 a month? Overwhelmingly, the answer is no. So the tenant base is really sticky. And you compound that with the fact that there's a lot of mismanagement out there, meaning that properties, the business is very segregated and, and there's not a lot of fluidity in terms of the typical market segments that people are looking at. So there's a lot of mismanagement. So you can buy properties based on in-place income and implement value-add strategies, including rental increases very quickly without getting a lot of pushback from the tenant base because of the fact that that gross dollars are relatively insignificant and they're on monthly leases. So you can implement those strategies very quickly. So basically you can come into a, to a, a new asset with, without in the multifamily space. I'm sure, you know, the first thing when somebody hears there's a sale is if it's not handled properly, there's a mass exodus, everybody panics, the rent's going to go up. They have no idea what to expect. So they assume the worst, they all run for the Hills. Um, right. In the, in those mini storage space, nobody knows. It's not a visual thing. It's a pain in the butt to move. It's kind of like a mobile home park. Who's moving their trailer? Not easily. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Catastrophic to get them to move. So it's just as bad. They're not going to move the stuff as easily as they would relocate for a different residence. Mismanagement is not as in my, and this is my, and I'm ignorant on the topic. So I'm like, you know, please chime in. I'm, my vision is, is that you're not going to see the effects of mismanagement as much in a storage as you would, I think, because it's more financial, it's more behind the scenes in exchange in, as compared to uh, deferred maintenance. In other words, you can see deferred maintenance. You drive down the street. Well, it used to be a blue building. Now it's powder blue because they haven't painted it in 20 years or, you know, there's garbage and the, in the, the trash is overheaping. But in the storage business, you can, you're going to see those things and, and, but that's easily dealt with. My comparison though is you're not going to see the financial mismanagement. You're not going to, nobody's going to notice by driving by. They haven't raised the rates. The tenants aren't exactly, gonna... exactly. And you know, it's interesting because on its face, it seems like a very simple asset class. But when you go into the details, there's incredible complexities and the complexities allow for there to be a very significant discrepancy between a mom and pop operator and a best in class operator. So to your point, you can even see that a facility is 90% occupied and you may think, okay, well, yeah, so they're 90% occupied. The market's 90% occupied. There's no real value here. Let's move on. But when you get into the details, especially if you know how to underwrite property, you can see there are things like online marketing sales, SEO, or building relationships with nearby businesses, particularly truck rental companies or universities or military bases branded merchandise sales, all of these things can really add up. So think about it on Excel. You're thinking about line after line after line item where each item can be implemented more effectively. Um, you know, one of the things I, I talk about frequently is the, the truck rental or the relationship with U-Haul. So in conjunction with our sponsors, we have a relationship with U-Haul so that we can buy properties based on in-place income and then call our contact at U-Haul have them park their trucks in the facility. And so we're talking about 15, 50 trucks, depending on the size of the facility. And we will rent out those trucks to our tenant base when they need to move in and out, obviously. And we get a commission from U-Haul for facilitating the transaction. So I have personally invested in opportunities where that one line item 
has gone from $0 a month to $3,500 a month in less than six months. And that's with zero capital expenditure. And that's really what we're looking for, obviously, is risk-adjusted returns. So that strategy right there, you know, looking at it on a cap rate basis, half a million dollars oh, added man. to a values property by simply implementing the strategy, right? We didn't buy the trucks. We didn't maintain the trucks. We just leveraged the, the relationship. And again, looking at that property up front, just saying, hey, it's 90% occupied, uh, a less experienced operator may not understand that that strategy, uh, if affected properly, uh, can really add the value to, to the, as well as the cash flow. So essentially, when you're taking these things on and you're looking at them, you're underwriting them, you're, you're looking for the, I call it, where's Waldo? You're looking for the, the problems and you're essentially, everybody can see the conventional problems, but you're taking, you're looking at lost opportunity as a problem. In other words, they're Correct. not capitalizing on an opportunity. And then you discover that, that stopgap, so to speak, or, or that, that, I shouldn't say stopgap, that shortcoming. And then you guys buy it and then, then go ahead and pull the trigger and exploit that, which is going to send your profit margins through the ceiling. Exactly. And part of that is, you know, we talked about earlier, the fact that a lot of these facilities can be highly occupied, but completely mismanaged and underperforming simultaneously. It's rare. It's, it's kind of unique to the asset class. It's because of those complexities I was just mentioning. So one of the things we talk about in cell storage, it's not as popular in other other asset classes is the discrepancy between physical occupancy and economic occupancy. So this is, this is things like you're looking at the physical occupancy. It's the percentage of the square foot or this percentage of this, uh, the units that are occupied. Right. Then you're looking at things like how, how low are the rental rates compared to market values? Is the management overpaid? Is there, are they giving away concessions? You see things like, you know, two months free if you move in, stuff like that prepaid rental discounts or our employees potentially, you know, taking personal expenses through the property balance sheet. All of this is incredibly popular in the asset class because of the fact that it's very fragmented asset class, meaning that about 77% of all the facilities in the United States are independently owned. And what I mean by that is non-REITs and right. a significant portion are single facility owners. So they only have one property. They just don't have a system in place. It's not fully integrated and really optimized in terms of that whole process. So, wow. So the, the opportunity, and that was, that was one of the questions I was going to ask is how this seems like a saturated market. But if you've got that many uh, single owners, non-re, mom and pop shops, whatever you want to call them, if the percentages are that high, there's a huge amount of opportunity if, if you're focused yeah, yeah. on solving problems. There is. Now you have to be cautious because of the fact I mentioned earlier that the asset class basically doubled in size. I mean, it's a massive asset class. It went from 20,000 facilities in about 1995 to about 53,000 facilities now. To put that in perspective, that is about the same number as all the Starbucks, all the McDonald's, all the subways in the United States combined. Wow. And I know that sounds insane, but you can check it out add all those numbers up, you're going to get to about the same number. So that's how big the asset class is. And it happened very quickly, right? And so there's, there's a cautionary tale there. Also, it makes sense from an investor's perspective. That's why the asset class is blown up, but it's easy to build these. So you have to find markets that are completely undersupplied and the supply demand disequilibrium is in your favor. So what we look for is, so the national average is about 7.8 square foot per person of self-storage in, in the United States. So we look for markets where that number is, is really, really uh, low. Um, we, we underwrite, you know, looking at it about seven 
per square foot per person. And then we see how low it is undersupplied to that number, the seven rather than 7.8. So right. if you're looking at a market where within a five mile radius, it's 180,000 square feet undersupplied. That's a really good sign in terms of the profitability because it's all about supply demand. Even if a brand new 2018 development comes online right next door, the standard self-storage facilities are somewhere between 50 and 100,000 square feet. So if a facility was built next door, you would still be undersupplied in the market, meaning you're still able to push rents, you're still able to increase occupancies, as long as you're utilizing those strategies I was talking about, you know, going to military bases, for example, or going to universities, putting your flyers over there, both of those tenant bases can make for good tenants. You know, when you're talking about the having the shortcomings of the marketplace, you do your, your math, you come up with the markets underserved. How much are you factoring in other other things? Why that's underserved? In other words, let's say Tampa, for example. Tampa is a market where, and I haven't read any of the self storage reports. I have no idea what I'm talking about about self storage. But in the multifamily space, we look at. I'm looking at all this construction. And I'm wondering where are the people that are going to fill these things? <laughs> right. <laughs> We're going to be overbuilt here at some point, and there, a lot of people come back and say, "Well, look at the military presence. Look at McDill Air Force Base. Yes, it's an Air Force Base, which means." Washington could decide in a minute that they're going to shut down the base or, or downsize the base and move it. So how many people you're building? And I don't, I don't know if this applies to the, the storage space, but in that example, we're kind of hedging our bets on one thing versus several. Very, very good point. And so, you know, the military thing is kind of, it has its downsides, right? So you definitely don't want to be in markets that are entirely dependent on one tenant, regardless of it's a government contract or not. To your point, that can be gone in, in the stroke of a pen. And so we want to look for markets that are contained viable real estate. This is a term that Ethan Penner, uh, you know, I kind of used from him. Right. It's basically markets that have a diverse economy with 50,000 residents within a five mile radius. We're looking for 20 to 25,000 daily traveled vehicles, and it must be visible from the street, right? The daily travel vehicles doesn't matter if the property is not seen. So you see a lot of self-storage facilities, you know, high tucked behind a Walmart or something like that. That right. completely eliminates the daily traveled vehicles. Um, you know, it is a asset class which caters to people that need to have two things. They need to have stuff and they need to have money to store that stuff. So we're looking at 50,000 medium household income within three miles or so. These will kind of paint the pictures. Um, you know, to answer your question about Tampa, generally speaking, I think a lot of the opportunity in self storage is in the Southeast, um, you know, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Florida. And the reason for this is a combination of two things, economics and demographics. So those markets are definitely viable. You're seeing a lot of job growth in some of those markets, but the, the standard of living is high comparatively to the cost of living. But then you also have things like baby boomers. These individuals make for an interesting data point because there's a lot of people, you know, the average social security check is about $1,200 a month. The average two bedroom apartment is very close to that. Right. So a lot of people that are relying on social security are downsizing. And when they're downsizing, very likely to utilize self storage. So markets like Florida, for example, where a lot of baby boomers are moving because the standard of living is high and the cost of living is relatively low. I mean, that, that'll kind of paint a picture of you know, what I'm looking for when I look at a market. Interesting. 
Now, as far as I'm seeing new construction in our area, we've got the multifamily going up and that's fine. But one of the reasons why it puzzles me with the multifamily, why they're not, why they're building multifamily instead of buying the existing that's here. I don't, it does, the math doesn't make sense to me when I do the math that currently it's $125 a square foot in my market to build new multifamily concrete block, which makes more sense. Is it very market dependent in, in, in the self-storage business? These seem pretty much like they all look the same. They're, <laughs> they're your walls. There's a bunch of little garage doors. What kind of yeah. cost do you run into with these things? Yeah, it's a good point. And, you know, to be honest with you, I think that the the real value is in the value add self storage sector. So earlier I talked about the amount of mismanagement. I from the deals that I have seen, I don't think it's necessary to go and take on the risk associated with development in order to achieve relatively similar returns to to value add. And it's because of a combination of those strategies I was talking about earlier. You got the sticky tenant base, you've got all the ancillary income items, um, and you can just simply more effectively run the property. Now, when we do purchase properties, the big picture business thesis is to buy underperforming, undercapitalized, and mismanaged B-class facilities and turn them into top-tier A-class facilities. Um, so that does, you do incur some kind of capital expenditure going through that, but that's basically 24-hour entrance and surveillance, offering a lot of climate-controlled units, merchandise sales, et cetera. And is there an office? How safe is the facility? Things like that. Um, particularly the climate-controlled units, that's what we're willing to spend capital expenditure on okay. because of the fact that it makes a lot of sense. So we may find a market that is let's say it's 90% occupied and this particular facility's climate controlled units are 95% occupied. We may buy that property with the intention of expanding the facility of only climate controlled units. They're, they're 20% more expensive or so to build, but they are significantly more expensive to rent. And so because of that, it creates this stratification or discrepancy and basically creates an opportunity to implement that strategy and, offer an A-class property that's going to attract the right tenants. It's going to attract the right, the, the people that have the more money to f facilitate those long-term rental increases, which is the overall goal. Very interesting. Now you mentioned B-class, A-class and, and folks, we've talked about that before. That's basically the different, the quality grade of the asset. And, and I compare that to what I learned from my mentor was to compare it to stores that you shop and you got Nordstrom would be your A-class, your B-class would be Target, C-class would be Walmart and D-class. A D like David would be to the dollar store. Each one of those sell white t-shirts. The difference is the cost of the t-shirt <laughs> and the experience right. you receive. So in self-storage though, I can visualize when you say multifamily B class, I'm looking for, you know, typical white picket fence type middle America, average income earners. It's easy to identify that with multifamily. What can you drive by a facility and judge a class based on its, uh, its local immediate neighborhood or how is B-class, how would I identify B-class in storage? Yeah, that's a good question. And I would say the answer is yes, with shades of gray. So if, you're, if I'm driving by a street, I can see from the outside whether they should be in A-class property or not. Now, how the property is run is going to honestly play a role in, in that answer. So if you're seeing a really attractive color scheme, if you're seeing a lot of security, if you're seeing lights, if you're seeing an on-site office and a manager that lives on-site on the property, those are all kind of the makings of an A-class 
property. Okay. Now, if you go there and the property is really undermanaged and you can see that it's a mom and pop owner that doesn't really care and, and they don't greet you and they don't offer you water and stuff like that, then, you know, it's kind of a gray area, obviously. But we want to offer amenities. And that's really the, the difference between A class and B class. Interesting. Very interesting. I like that because it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, the, it's a level of service that you're essentially providing. Exactly. And that, most of the value add. Exactly. Um, most of the tenants, the majority uh, of the tenants are women. And so we want to build, you know, facilities that uh, are, that appear very safe and, and have a color scheme that looks attractive. And that kind of can help, you know, facilitate that. Nice. Now, people say that these are hands-off, maintenance-free. And I, I got to tell you, they look that way on the surface. I You drive by and most everything is paved. I don't see a lot of grass. I, everything looks... I live in a nice community. So in my community, I'm probably like, I'm using a bad comparison. I'm looking at... A, I'm in an A-class community. So for me, I'm, I'm looking around going, well, that sure is pretty. But <laughs> I'm in an A-class community. <laughs> how, how maintenance-free are these for the owner, for the operator, I should say? Yeah. And that's really where uh, that question is really the question I set out to answer with my business cash flow connections. So the, the asset class itself is apparently, and you can be, you can be lucrative by investing in these asset classes and, and remaining hands off as an owner, but you're missing out on the real opportunity. In my opinion, the opportunity in, in self storage is to identify a best in class operator and leverage their time, energy and expertise. And because of the fact that it's really about the execution of all these strategies that I've laid out, these strategies can be, you know, I could write an ebook about this. You could read it in 45 minutes and get it. But the point is the execution is really what's causing the discrepancy between a mom and pop operator that thought they understood the business and a best in class sponsor. And that's really where Cashflow Connections fits in the niche of real estate. We identify sponsors that are best in class and facilitate investors that are looking for passive investments to those type of opportunities. Um, that's the way I invest my own portfolio. And that's the way that I, that I think it's most manageable in terms of people being able to focus on their strengths. And with self storage, I think it's probably the most clear cut example of why passive investing is, can be so lucrative and, and beneficial. So in that, so I'm clear, you'll, you raise the capital and you guys kind of team up with an operator. Let's call it, I, I'm just going to throw a name out there. People may recognize somebody like, I don't know, Uncle Bob Storage or Public Storage or some, a brand, essentially an experienced sure. operator that has a system. You will leverage their resources, uh, their team and their, their, to get the job done. And you kind of manage the investment from a portfolio perspective, correct? Exactly. And of Perfect. course, there's kind of a gray area because we're obviously very involved in each process oh, because yeah. we're syndicating opportunities, but that's really the key. And I think that that allows, you know, not just self storage, but other asset classes as well. It allows sponsors and managers to focus on what their uh, talents are and, and to use their skill set best and their highest best use of their time, which is identifying new deals, uh, constantly searching and, and continuing that process. So with self storage, you've got two elements you've got the from what I, my perspective is you've got the real estate and you've got the business and you got the dirt exactly in the structure the infrastructure and you've got the business you in a typical scenario does the syndicate acquire the real estate and then sublease it to an operator or does the operator come in on like on a 
a contractual basis to manage the property? Which which type of relationship is it usually? It, it's it's usually the latter. So usually the the sponsor will own equity in the property, and they will also be a fully vertically integrated management company as well. So they will both be the sponsor, the overseer, as well as the the management company. So they'll take a a fee for managing the business and uh, you know the on site management, et cetera management fee right. and then a, you know equity in the property above a pref for example um when the property is performing right that's absolutely brilliant i've actually I, I love that it's a, it's kind of a it's kind of a ray crockish to to use a term loosely it's it's i like that you you you're leveraging the real estate so you're controlling the real estate you're bringing them in as an equity partner to some degree and leveraging all of their resources. So you're working with the pros, which greatly diminishes risk. We're not necessarily trusting Hunter Thompson to be the king of storage in Opelaka, Oklahoma. We're trusting Hunter to choose the right operator. And let's say it winds up being public storage or whoever it is, a name brand that's got proven systems to come in and do the work, therefore reducing the risk of the investment as a whole. Am I correct? Exactly. Exactly. And, and the key there is just a combination of relationships. So we curate these relationships. These are relationships that we've done, you know, dozens of transactions with, been working with for years, and as all well as the infrastructure for conducting due diligence. So we're, you know, concurrently with the sponsors flying on site, going through underwriting, creating our own underwriting opportunities, criminal checks and background checks. And this is kind of the services that, that we offer. And then to your point about, you know, the incentive alignment, regarding giving them part of the deal, et cetera, that is critical. Um, I think, you know, Warren Buffett talks a lot about even ethical people can have their vision clouded if their incentives are misaligned. And that's something I take extremely seriously. Uh, so much so that I want the business and the waterfall and the entire structure to be set up so that even if the person decides to act unethically, it would not be in his interest to do so. And I think over the long term, uh, that is really solid. Plus, you know, people that are going to be paid based on performance are also going to be, uh, you know, more confident as well as the type of people you want to make long-term bets on. And and that's how my entire portfolio is structured. That is absolutely brilliant. I'm not, I'm not even joking. That's awesome. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> when I got started in multifamily, one of the struggles that I had initially was um, I was a new guy on the, on the block and they didn't care that I've flipped a million houses. That didn't matter to anybody. And they, they actually told me, look, dude, you can't play in this field because, you know, when you grow up and become a big boy, you let us know. And it's like, well, wait a minute. You know, it's like applying for the job. How do I get any experience if you don't let me play with the toys? I have money. What do you care what I do with it? It's like, you know, I'm going mm -hmm. and buying, paying cash just to get. Uh, so I, I had difficulty obtaining terms early on because of a lack of experience. And my mentor came to me and said, here's what you're missing. You need to get with a management company. Uh, that can, and you can leverage their expertise and bring them in as an equity partner on some of your deals. Leverage that that's going to number one, keep them honest, like you said. And that to your point, Hey, I'm not going to rip off myself. I'm going to rip off somebody else if I was going to rip off somebody, but I'm certainly not going to rip off myself. So it keeps everybody honest, but it keeps them also makes them vested in the success of the, of the investment. So if I'm a passive investor coming in in your deal, I think that's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. It, it's a, it's a uh, checks and balances system built right in. It's like baked right into the whole investment. That's, that's brilliant. I love it. 
Yeah, I appreciate that. And, you know, just to add to that, because I know that, you know, some of your listeners may be just getting started out and, and feel like they cannot participate in a five, $15 million transaction. Uh, with the syndicate structure, you can partner with experts and, and play a role and establish a track record by leveraging their expertise. Um, in, in deals. And, you know, this is how I got started in 2010 or so. And, you know, I found that niche, you know, very, and I heard you did an interview with Joe Fairless talking about the syndication structure. I'm a huge proponent of that because yeah. at the end of the day, you know, if you talk to someone about their financial goals and you really help them identify what their actual goal is, the vast majority will be to have their cash flow pay off their expenses, right? And a lot of that has to do with the mindset that comes along with the reliability of cash flow. But in my opinion, these uh, syndication and passive syndicated investments are the most direct route to achieve that goal. And, and so that's where the majority of, you know, where we help our clients do it. That's, that's towards that, towards meeting that goal as most directly as possible. Awesome. Hey, Andre, if people want to reach out to you or running short on time today, but people want to reach out to you and maybe, they want to kind of kick the tires a little bit and they want to learn more about this. Maybe they want to just say, Hey, you know, this is, this works for me. They, they want to do an investment or something like that, or at least see if they can qualify to do an investment with you. What's the best way for them to reach you? Yeah, sure. So you can check out the website, like he mentioned very nicely earlier, which is cashflowconnections.com. Also, if you like podcasts and, and this podcast, I have listened to many of the episodes, a lot of tremendous value. So if you like this type of content, uh, we have a podcast as well on iTunes, which is the Cashflow Connections Real Estate Podcast, conveniently enough. And, uh, you know, happy to check it out. And I also love networking with investors. You know, I was started at, you know, in a place where I needed mentors and was very lucky with the people I met at the right time and always happy to exchange emails or jump on a call. So don't hesitate to send me an email at Hunter Thompson at cashflowconnections.com. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate that. And folks, if you haven't, I appreciate you coming on the show as well. I really, I know you're a busy guy. You got a lot going on and I appreciate you taking that time. So folks, I want to wrap up here, but I want to say before we go, and while I've still got Hunter here, is that, you know, the thing about what impresses me about the operation here is, is it, it's similar to what we've done. And I believe it, it, you, you, I need to prove that I'm competent when I do an investment. Okay. When I'm taking on another person's capital, we're, we're doing a deal together. You should scrutinize what we do. You should expect a certain level of of uh, disclosure. And, and I think a podcast, an investor that has a podcast is a very important part of that. Now, if you can step out of yourself and come on and, and be asked questions completely out of the blue and not expecting the questions, nothing is ever scripted. It shows me that you're dealing with an expert. I'm not saying that to be self-serving. I'm saying that in, to Hunter is that when you are someone that puts yourself out there to be interviewed, you don't know what to expect. You never know what's on the other end. And when you're doing investments, folks, with people and you're getting ready to think about trusting somebody with your money, look at companies like his that have a podcast. They're taking the time to educate the consumers. And folks, if you're dealing with somebody that's not willing to educate you so that you don't understand what you're investing in, the first thing I'm going to tell you to do is to slam on the brakes. Don't ever, and I'm sure Hunter, you'll agree with this, don't ever invest in anything that you don't understand. With that said, I'm not asking, I don't think you need a, a master to do a master's thesis on public storage and Hunter's not going to take you through a college course on it, but you should educate yourself listening to shows like this, get engaged, get on the phone with them, reach out to his team, 
ask the questions, feel comfortable, and then pull the trigger and make it happen. Is there anything you want to add to that before we wrap up, Hunter? Well, I mean, obviously, I'm just very flattering. So I, I sincerely appreciate that. And yeah, I can't, I can't uh, agree more. I'd say that when you're pursuing new investments, it, it's always about a personality check. Business is only about people. So when you find people that are trying to make you fund as quick as possible, those are not the people that you want to build long-term relationships with. You want to find people that are dedicated to education and operate from a perspective of, of complete, um, com absolute complete, complete transparency. And, and that's exactly the key. And you can tell from a gut perspective, um, you know, those type of personalities that you're dealing with. Absolutely. I really appreciate you taking time on your day to come out on the show, folks. You need to take some action. A lot of you've asked me questions about, about self-storage and be honest with you, I never answered most of them because my answer was you're going to need to reach out, listen to some podcasts on the topic, go on iTunes, search. But now you're fresh out of excuses. You now have a podcast to go listen to. Head on over to Cashflow Connections, download his podcast. It's got some good content on there. I read a lot of it this morning before we started this episode in the last couple of days. He talks about it, like mobile homes as well, mobile home parks and things like that. So reach out and take things to the next level. Hunter, thanks again for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks again for having me. I'd like to have you back here probably in the next couple, maybe a couple of months, and we'll get an update on what you're working on and go from there and give some folks some more value. So, love to do it. Folks, I appreciate you taking the time to spend with us this week. We ran a little long on this episode, but you know me, if the value is there on the content, we're not going to stop. I'm not watching the clock. I want to provide value to you. That's how I become a bigger, better investor. While you're out there providing value in the marketplace, take the time to educate someone else. If you learn something today, pass the information on to someone else, ask them to go on our website, subscribe to our, our podcast on iTunes, go on YouTube, subscribe to our YouTube channel, head on over to Cashflow Connections, patronize them over there, get signed up for the, the podcast and take a listen. Folks, have a great week. We will catch up with you next time. This concludes today's episode. You don't have to wait till the next episode to learn to earn. Head over to CashflowGuys.com and contact Tyler and his team for more powerful tips and ideas. So you can start generating multiple streams of income and escape the rat race. <laughs>